Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We mark 25 years since the death of Ayrton Senna and ask, greatest ever or flawed genius? This year marks the 25th anniversary of the death of Ayrton Senna after an accident during the San Marino Grand Prix at Imola. A quarter of a century on and the loss of one of the all-time greats is still keenly felt. So in tribute today, we're going to delve into the man and driver, separate the fact from the myth and ask the question, is he the greatest ever or a flawed genius? I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to take on this challenging and controversial question is first Kevin Turner, King of Lists. As is his fashion, you've sifted through the Grand Prix career of Ayrton Senna to come up with your ranking of his 10 great races, which we'll come to later. You've also been overseeing a special magazine. Yes, to coincide with the anniversary on the 1st of May, we're reissuing the the special uh, magazine that we did a few years ago with some new content, new interviews. Quite a lot of new content, in fact. Yes, more than I had anticipated when I started the project. So, um, yeah, it's it's taken more time than I expected, and we're just hopefully finishing it sort of, well, about now, basically. Now, also joining me is Glenn Freeman, nowadays more famous for his regular appearance as an autosports video output, but making a very welcome reappearance on the podcast. Can you cope with people not being able to see your face? I can always cope with that. That's one of the worst things about doing video. What I can't cope with, Ed, is the fact that we're recording this in the exact place 
where we sit and uh, do the videos. So I'm baffled by the fact there are no cameras and no crew looking at me. And uh, I don't really know what to do. Can we point a camera at us just for to make me feel more comfortable? Well, I can assure the listeners that Glenn is looking fabulous today. So there's, there's I doubt despite, that very much. Despite the fact that it's audio only, he's still still looking uh, still looking tip top. Well, let's get back to the matter at hand, Ayrton Senna, which is a uh, you know, it's a, as I've said, it has potential to be controversial because he's 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 deified in many areas, but he was a real human being and a, and a real driver with his, his strengths and weaknesses. But I guess the place to start, Kev, is when you think Ayrton Senna, you think qualifying, don't you? He's he's heralded by many as the the greatest qualifier. I guess you could argue Lewis Hamilton is is the nearest challenger to to that crown. Senna was was the master of one lap, wasn't he? Yes, I think you think qualifying or wet weather, don't you? But uh, but but qualifying really comes to mind, um, partly because of the way he described it. Obviously, a lot of we'll get onto this later, maybe about the the myth about the nineteen eighty eight Monaco qualifying. But I think probably yeah, Jim Clark and Lewis Hamilton, perhaps the two you would put there in terms of abs- you know absolute one lap pace. And the interesting thing is, I think it, it suited his sort of the way he was so determined was to always be improving himself, which is quite unusual actually for someone as uh, who had a privileged background as he did, you know, wealthy family. Sometimes those sort of drivers are a bit hot and cold. Yeah, when they're in the mood, they're quick, and when they're not, they're not in it because they've never had to really dig deep. But but Senna was all about pushing himself all the time, and I think qualifying was perfect for that. He'd go and find that little extra something and ways to unlock more potential out of himself, um, which is probably more like a modern driver actually because obviously they've got all the data to look at they can make these incremental gains all the time Um, but yeah he's got to be considered one of the very fastest racing drivers of all time I imagine he would probably hate the current F1 qualifying format he might thrive in the sort of pressure that you have of having to deliver a lap at certain times and not having as much time to build up to it but I think he did get a kick out of the way the old qualifying sessions were and the way that he could kind of build up to if he wanted to go right at the end and have the sort of yellow crash helmet frightening everybody off the road, he could do that. But I think now qualifying is completely different. And that's what makes Lewis's achievements in some ways so phenomenal as, you know, his pole position record is is outstanding. But I think I think the nature of Senna's time in F1, how competitive it was and, and how many chances everybody else got to put in the perfect qualifying lap as well means that that record that he held for so long really does stand the test of time even today. I think another key difference as well is that uh, certainly in the early part of his career with the turbo boost, you had much more improvisation. I think Senna was a great improviser. So um, you'd have qualifying tyres or the boost turned right up. You had a completely different car to the one you had in the race. Um, so it was, a, it was a, a lap of adventure. And that's why the gaps were so big, because it was how much you'd commit and how much you'd hang on to it. Whereas now it's almost the opposite. It's, it's the optimization of everything they know. Um, on low fuel and, and fresh tyres. So it's, it's, it is almost a different challenge, I think. The thing that shows most obviously what an impressive qualifier he was was a record of pole positions that he took during his Lotus years, actually. As Kev says, when everything was turned up to 11 on some of those scary turbo cars, Senna was the one prepared to extract the most from it. Lotus didn't always have the pace on race day. There was a huge discrepancy for a lot of cars back then between single lap pace and race pace because of the demands of and the infancy of the technology in many ways but for me I don't look at his McLaren record of pole positions as the bit that impresses him most it's the the Lotus days I think the thing that 
made Senna so good at that is he's he's this fantastic combination. If he had fantastic car control and feel, he was a fantastic reactive driver. But he also worked very hard to understand how to get the car to do what he wanted, to to provoke the car at times because the way he used the throttle, not just for for, for the, the turbo impact, but there are other effects he could have it. So he was very very good at. Uh, he was stabby on the throttle, exactly. Wasn't he? Yeah, and and, uh, and and he he knew what he was doing as well. So it was it was this kind of combination of the driver input and also the reaction to the car's output which is kind of gives you this 360 degree if you like he's not he's not just limited to certain certain situations also the confidence he had in him, himself i remember uh speaking to giorgio ascanelli a few years ago who was a race engineer at mclaren at one stage talking to him about cops and apparently senna thought that or that they thought the car could go flat through cops but senna didn't feel it could go flat through cops but senna was able to go out and just turn in flat and just go for it and and make it work. Special drivers have that capacity to kind of switch off that feel and drive to what they hope is possible. Well, it's, I think it's commitment sums it up, doesn't it? He was committed with the engineers. He was committed with the engine guys, actually. He was really understood the engines. He was optimising everything, but he was also committed behind the wheel. And sometimes that went too far which is something we'll come on to later but i think in qualifying the one thing you you definitely need is commit you send it you got the car is never going to be faster than now so you've just got to you've got to have a little bit of belief back yourself to do it and he obviously could do that and of course not only do you have the raw numbers the the pole record that uh, senna had for a long time which schumacher then broke and then lewis hamilton subsequently obviously with uh, with more races but i did a little bit of a, uh, an analysis earlier about the about the pace looking at what we call the super time so it's the fastest single lap on a weekend to compare senna to his his teammates there was never a teammate who was quicker than him over over a season or a, a stint together would you like to have a hazard a guess at which driver in their appearances together in the same team was on average closest to senna Nakajima, surely. <laughs> Nakajima, to everybody's surprise, is at uh, the bottom of the list. He was 4.455% off at Lotus in, in 87. But interestingly, the closest small sample set was Mika Hakkinen for that three race stint in 1993. It was only 0.326 off, but only three races, we should say. So I think Hakkinen's arrival did give Senna a bit of a kick as well. It wound him up at Estoril, Definitely, didn't it? yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's interesting to look. Uh, Prost's eighty-eight season was was the next best one, point four oh eight off, and then Prost drops to a one percent off in in eighty-nine. Of course, we use percentages because it evens out, so each each circuit is a uh, is even regard. Four percent though in eighty-nine. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big drop off, um, and that that brings Prost's overall average to point seven percent off off centre on their two years together, which puts him uh, very similar level, actually fractionally worse off compared to to Berger, who was. Uh, who was 0.67 in in the first in in 92.67 off and then 0.85 off in 91 but his best season was 1990.48482 off so do we think I'm sure we're going to come back to Prost plenty of times but just while we're talking about qualifying do we think that maybe after that first year together Prost went you know what I can't get near him in qualifying I'll just worry about the race I think it happened very early on in that first year I think kind of what Lauda did with absolutely Prost before, they were first roles yeah um, and as Nigel Roebuck wrote at the time Prost was a lot closer to Senna's qualifying pace than Lauda was to Prost I mean miles off um, but yeah I think the interesting th- comparison there between Prost and Berger is that with Berger that was as close as he got was qualifying normally and in the race the gap would be as big or bigger uh, with, but with Prost it was often the reverse if he was in the ballpark in qualifying, you think, right, well, actually, he's going to be able to give Senna a race. That happened quite a lot. Um, Prost's, the giveaway to Prost weekend was often warm-up. 
He topped warm up a lot of times. Oh, he's qualified sixth, but he's quickest in warm up by half a second. Uh, he, you know, here he comes, sort of thing. So I think that that's there's a bit of a difference of approach between Berger and Prost there. Uh, we should we should say actually that perhaps Senna's last season, the three races in '94, also speaks very well to his qualifying form. The Williams wasn't the easiest car to drive, but he could yank a lap out of it, so he was on pole three times in those those three Williams outings. And in fact, the gap to Damon Hill was 0.656 on average. Uh, percent off, which I thought Hill was a little bit closer than than, than I thought actually on on that, but still you could take a difficult car, a car that wasn't consistently giving giving you a feel and was having little stalls here and there, and, and managed to uh, to yank a time out of it. So I mean, I think that the summary of the qualifying thing is basically just about everything you've heard about. So this qualifying brilliance is uh, is is true. I mean, it's, it's interesting, Kev. We do often get this the kind of spiritual side of qualifying and that kind of thing, which. I sometimes find a little bit difficult to, well, not necessarily difficult, but I don't feel it's that informative, shall we say. No, it sort of gives that sort of uncomfortable feeling, doesn't it? But I think that perhaps the way of looking at it is that was a way he found to get himself in the zone to yeah. produce something special. Well, it's all about subconscious so, processing, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's, that's where you're quickest. And so you're almost, you're not thinking about it, think, break here, do this. You're just doing it. And it probably does feel a bit like it was described as kind of an out-of-body experience almost. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it was strange that he said that he got to a point where he wasn't comfortable and came in. That's the famous 88 Monaco one. Um, but as a general rule, he got himself into that into that zone and that was why he was able to deliver what he delivered. And obviously you can perhaps do that over one lap in a way you maybe can't over an entire race. So I think that's that's perhaps where it where it's a sort of a useful tell of, of you know how he was able to do it. But certainly, I think qualifying is the uh, it's definitely a strong suit for Senna. So I don't, I don't think anyone's going to argue on that. Well, let's move on to to his wet race ability, and we'll also have a look at his, his street circuit ability as as well. Kev, you've uh, you've been studying all of his races, so you're probably the best equipped to give us a bit of a briefing on this. Well, I had a bit of a, going back to warm up. Had a warm up of this a couple of years ago, and we did our wet weather special. Um, and I think I wrote a piece for Allsport.com, which was essentially you're looking at who who can top the greatest wet weather list. And it essentially came down to the three or four names that you would always expect, really. Um, Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart, Ayrton Senna, Mark Schumacher, and of course, Lewis Hamilton. And actually, at the moment, I say the closest, I think Senna probably takes it on the basis of the number of wet weather wins he had, which was um, uh, at the time was second behind Schumacher, but with a small number of races. So his strike rate was better. But Lewis is getting into the ballpark and he hasn't lost a race. In that's been rain affected since 2014, uh, Lewis Hamilton. So he is the guy that's most close to that uh, that that sort of knocking centre off that that perch of wet weather drivers. Um, and I'm really interested to see if we can get another two or three races, especially if he's taken on and beating Max Verstappen, who everyone can see is great in the wet as well. Then uh, that will give Lewis a stronger claim. But Senna's up up there in that top sort of three or four. But of course, Glenn, when it comes to the wet. The wet conditions. It wasn't the Senna was just magically great at this, was it? He he did famously. He he talked about how he struggled in the wet in karting. So he just every time it rained, he went and drove and and mastered the wet that way. Yeah, I think it's a good example of something we mentioned in qualifying as well. Actually, that, that he wasn't some sort of mythical character to whom everything came really naturally and it was all just a gift. He he was he was hard working and yeah, we we've talked about it in qualifying already. We're now talking about it with the. The wet weather stuff as well. It it probably doesn't apply to the street circuit element in quite the same way because I don't think you can really go out and practice being good on street circuits. I think that's about how comfortable you are 
being right up against the limit and having no margin for error. And that's clearly something that Senna excelled at as well. And that probably is transferable to the wet as well, because someone like Prost, who could be good in the wet on his day if he wanted to, but also had that element, particularly later in his career, where he was very aware of the risks and the dangers, probably in a way that Senna was able to either wasn't aware or was able to park it in the back of his mind. And that that was kind of how, how it evolved for Senna. We know that from the moment he got to F1, he was making an impact in the rain, you know, in the Tolman. And then the first win, I think it's fitting that the first win came in horrendous conditions where they today we probably wouldn't even be racing. There'd either be a safety car or a red flag. It was that bad. And those cars, as we talked about earlier with the qualifying stuff, were absolutely terrifying. You Imagine having that sort of turbo lag and turbo performance in a heavy car with no driver aids or anything like that to hustle around a sodden Estoril. That's absolutely terrifying. And for a guy who is only just starting his second season of F1 to blow everyone everyone away, that that laid a marker that he continued to live up to throughout his career. I do think the point about the amount of work he put in was important because I, I, I dislike, we've talked about it before on previous podcasts, we talked about Graham Hill, for example. You get the 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 clash between the natural talent and the and the worker. And there's almost like this idea that being the worker is diminishing. But personally, I think it's always better to look at how people did achieve this. The idea that Senna just had some magic talent and just jumped in a car and did it, well, that, that to me is not a great drive if it just comes all so easily to you. But it, it doesn't come easy to any of them. It comes easier to some than others. And yes, you can have characteristics and things that make it easier. Some learn quicker and get it all pushed down into the subconscious processing so they don't have to think about it. But but Senna, of course, he had to work at it. And that, I think, is so much more appealing to me than a character who's just magically got it. Well, I think it does him a disservice, you know, someone who clearly worked. As, I mean, Ron Dennis has talked about how how his commitment and drive within the team made Ron Dennis raise his game. Well, Ron, Ron's game was pretty high already when Senna arrived in 88. You know, they won most of, you know, a lot of the championships in, in the 80s. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it absolutely, I, I don't like, as you know, Ed, I don't like the natural talent thing either. I think it's 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 a bit bit vague and not very accurate. And, uh, yeah, I think that, that, that Senna was, uh, wasn't just about that. He was a, a hard worker who went out and learnt his craft and kept on getting better throughout his career. And the street circuit thing, I think, again, we've done street circuit specials in the past. And, again, Senna comes out very, very well when you look at his record. And there were quite a few street circuits in that time. So this was the phase. Yeah, it's not just about Monaco, is it? We obviously yeah. all talk about his Monaco wins record, but he won on a lot of, when F1 would have these random street circuits that would turn up for a year or two, Senna was always a factor, wasn't he? Exactly. Your Phoenixes, your Detroits, these kind of tracks. Yeah, I think he's probably even clearer number one on the street thing than he, you know, with the, with the wet racing and the qualifying, it's there are a couple of other names you throw in, but on the street track one, it was... I couldn't. There was no one with the sort of numbers that he that he'd pumped in. To be honest, I guess that reflects commitment, doesn't it? And that ability to know well, how precision, much, precision, yeah. but that ability to to commit. Yeah, while knowing that if you're a little bit out, some drivers have to leave a little bit of a gap, a little bit of more margin. But but Senna could really drive drive to his limits. And there were, you know, you, you mentioned the the Monaco qualifying lap. I guess that's the one everyone talks about, eighty eight, which is the the mythical one. I mean, you, you did call it the myth of, of that. So, uh, were, were you implying that 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 there, there, it wasn't quite as magic as made out, or, or just that it is? It has achieved this mythical status. Yeah, I think it's probably partly the mythical status thing because of the way he talked about it. it gets kind of quoted too much, and we're sort of talking about it again. But also because I think it does down a lot of his other qualifying laps. Yeah, it was just it's because of the way that Senna talked about it. I think it's kind of 
got this big magical thing about it. But um, I'm not convinced that it was his. I haven't done a top ten centre qualifying lap. So Why would, not? That would be hard. That's one one of the few things I haven't done next year. Yeah. Oh God. Um, but I don't think it would be a definite clear number one. I think it's it's the most famous one, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was the best. Exactly, and it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it was the MP44 in '88, a dominant car, and Alan Prost wasn't particularly interested in in battling. I mean, again, that's not to diminish it, but again, it, it comes down to, I think, the big problem we've got with Senna, and we'll we'll keep talking about this, is the the myth that's built built up around him, and kind of his career in Formula One has boiled down to these five or six things some of which aren't always remembered quite as they were, that, that creates these problems. It's like, right, all these evidence that he's a superhuman and we forget forget about the rest, where sometimes it means we overlook we overlook other great things. Uh, the street circuit thing, I mean, he did win Monaco a huge number of times, won the Monaco Grand Prix six times in the end, didn't he? And the last one being in 1993 for McLaren. So, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal driver in, in, the, in the tight confines of, of those, those sorts of tracks. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the the way he operated. We've touched on how he worked with the team, but sometimes you get these drivers who are phenomenally quick, great drivers, but they don't necessarily cohere a team around him. And Ayrton Senna certainly could do that, couldn't he? Yes, and I think part of it was because people could see, and I think this happens with the, you know, the great drivers often, they lift everyone, sometimes indirectly, just by their work rate and the fact that the guys know if they're, They've made a change on the car that's a tenth faster. They go up and they find the tenth, and it it just it just kind of gets momentum. And I think that that Senna had that, and he was he was a particularly good engine man. And I think he he basically wanted to try and eke out that last bit of performance from any part of the package. Um, so his his understanding of engines was very good. He worked a lot with Honda how to get the best out of that. So that and it became a two way street. Then that works in your favour. And even with the active suspension at Lotus in nineteen eighty seven, it wasn't at that point definitely better. Well, we should remember in that Nigel Mansell was deeply sceptical mm. about active ride for a long time. It was a huge point of contention for him at times. So actually embracing something like active ride when it was a bit more all over the place well, earlier on. That's that. I mean, that again shows. He could look at something and understand its potential. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, Nigel was a, a Lotus in '83, and they very first tried it briefly, and I think that that probably coloured his judgment for later exactly, because exactly. it was so far off at that point. By '87, they had a bit more of a handle on it. The road car division had been doing some, some quite a lot of work on it, but Senna could see there is something here. They didn't. They hadn't quite worked it out. Um, and actually, the big problem in '87, if you look at his qualifying. He had, I think, one pole in 87, whereas, um, as Glenn was talking about earlier, he had loads of poles in the first two years at Lotus, but it's because the active was so soft on the rubber, they couldn't get the, the heat in the tyre and all the rest of it. But that did mean um, that it was great in the races. It looked after the rubber, looked after the tyres, and Senna actually changed his attitude across the weekend. and go, right, I'm never going to, I'm very unlikely to get pole. I'm going to work towards the race. And there were a few races that year where he won by being softer on the tyre. He almost won the Italian Grand Prix by doing that as well. Um, so, yeah, it was spotting the potential in something and then committing fully to it. I think this isn't just about could he galvanise a team around him. In Honda, he galvanised an entire manufacturer and giant motor company in Japan. And Honda basically fell in love with him. And that was obviously influential in him and Honda going to McLaren kind of together in 88. It played a big part, I think, in a lot of the mind games that went on and the way Prost perhaps psyched himself out of McLaren towards the end of 89 because Honda were absolutely infatuated with with Senna and that was 
partly because of this kind of mythical status that was being created. You know, they they clearly bought into that. But it was, I think, a key phrase that you used there was that you described him as an engine man. And obviously that was great for Honda. They were incredibly proud of what they were doing in F1 in, in the 80s and Senna embraced that. And Kev, I know we're operating from a set of notes that you helped us put together. And I think one thing that's really interesting on this section is um, what you've written down is excellent recall of a lap. And when I said earlier that I think there are elements of modern F1 that maybe Senna wouldn't like, I think the big one, and this is something we hear from Lewis Hamilton a lot, and we're not trying to keep mentioning Lewis because we know about the connection Lewis likes to think he's got with Senna because he was a fan. But Lewis hates the data element of modern F1. I think Senna would have detested that as well because he had this skill and he was able to... I can ima- I've, I've, I've not seen it, but I could imagine that when Senna started talking in a debrief, all the engineers would just lean forward that little bit more. I think he'd have been really torn about it, actually, because I think in the one in the sense of I want to improve myself. In isolation for himself, a, he'd yes. He'd gone, this is great, yeah. but as a, well, this is closing all the field up. Yeah. I think I agree with you. I think he'd have said, well, you know, I want to see drivers go out and do their do their thing off their own back, not being told by a data. And, you know, you can't imagine Senna coming over the radio and going, oh, can I can I break de- deeper into Sandoval or where am I losing out to my teammate? Oh, yeah, a bit quicker into turn six. The thing is, though, I think he would have... He would have done because it would have meant he was He'd more likely to win. He'd have embraced it because it comes yeah. back to what we said before about if he was told you can break eight metres later into Sandoval or whatever, he'd just do it, you know, because, yeah. especially on a qualifying lap when he had that almost blind faith. I don't know if it would have happened a great deal, but, but <laughs> still, still he would have done it. I Where mean, can I find time around Monaco? Not really anywhere. But this, this is what the great drivers do. The, the greatest of the great drivers, they do have that capacity to, to make sure everything is behind them. And I think actually this is an area where Lewis Hamilton in the past few years, particularly after the Rosberg experience in, in 2016, has learned you have to leave no stone unturned. There's always the talk about was he favoured by Honda, etc. Now, maybe he was, but the fact is, this whole thing about galvanising a whole manufacturer behind him, a whole team behind him, teams by and large do not get behind drivers because they like them or whatever. They do it because they're the best ones to get behind. They think you're seriously good. And the fact, I think, that Senna could could get that fo- become that focal point for McLaren and effectively drive a, an all-time great like Alan Prost away from McLaren, where he's established, speaks to what Senna brought in terms of kind of raising the game. Yeah, it's, I think, I can't remember who it was, but someone coined the phrase that, that Prost was a McLaren driver with Honda engines and Senna was a Honda driver with McLaren chassis, um, which is quite nice. And I think probably, oh, did, did, he, get a, did he get some sort of higher revving engines of certain points might have done but if he did I think you could say that maybe that cost him the 89 title well, because that, the reliability that, wasn't there that's a great honour because actually his finishing rate in 89 was, was not great at all and of course he lost he lost the title well, we have mentioned Prost a few times and I think we, we've got we've got some way in without really getting into this and the whole Senna myth is seen through the prism of the Prost rivalry isn't it and it's the two years together at McLaren and then the the fight in in 1990 when uh, when Prost had gone to Ferrari and I find this quite distorting because it comes everything kind of becomes Team Prost or Team Senna and the fact is I think we can say right from the off they both did things they shouldn't have done they were both victims of things that shouldn't have happened neither was perfect but th- th- this this battle just became the defining thing of, of Senna's career didn't it beating Prost. I find it a bit too, it's one of those examples of it being a bit too black and white, isn't it? You know, one of them, as you say, it's, it's Senna was fantastic and Prost was terrible. 
or the other way around. And as you or say, good versus evil. As yeah, well. exactly. And that's been made worse by the 2010 film. Um, because well, I think the, the 2010 film, which I actually think it's a very, very it's a good documentary. Film. I always talk, say with documentary making, it's about the story you're telling. It tells it brilliantly. However, it has played a big part in the myth making, just sort of almost like calcifying the view of Senna. And I think Prost is the victim of that because he has to come out of it as the villain. He's the Balestra aligned beneficiary of all the things going against Senna. Yeah, which given Senna's on track behaviour, which we will come to later, is is pretty amazing. You know, Prost. Prost did turn into earlier into the Chicane in '89. I think it's fairly clear when you you, know, you look look at it back. But that stands out as his the only time that I can really think of with Prost in wheel to wheel stuff where he wasn't pretty scrupulously fair, basically. Whereas Senna, you could you couldn't say that about. Um, but the the film does paint Prost and and Balest in particular probably more deserving as as the evil the evil ones. And I think that that's then influenced people's views and will continue to do so. Um, on those two drivers how about the I mean, we'll get on to the, the clashes in detail in a minute but the just Senna and Prost as drivers you know did Senna blow Prost out of the water as, as people tend to think of McLaren I mean if you look at qualifying yes clearly but qualifying is only a small part of the equation I think I think it's actually fascinating it tells us a lot about the relative strengths of those two drivers when you look about look at the way they went about things that's what's fascinating is that they were they were so different. If they were just two guys who were could match each other toe to toe on pure speed, then you'd be going, "Oh, these fascinating flat out races." And but they went, they didn't just go about a race or a qualifying session differently. They went about the whole weekend differently. And as we touched on earlier, I think Prost from quite early on a Friday would already know: Am I in the ball? As Kev said earlier, am I in the ballpark here? Or do I need to come up with something clever for the race? Do I need to be able... Back then, there was a lot more tyre freedom. So if you could do something really clever with the tyres and make them last, which was a strength for Prost on particular occasions, he could go that way and look, as you said, Kev, completely off the pace until really the the warm-up on Sunday morning. Coming back to the sort of good versus evil and and the rivalry and all that, Prost did a really interesting book sort of with McLaren a couple of years ago. Um... And I read that and it's not a full on autobiography. It's it's largely in Prost's own words, but with lots of other voices in it as well. And, and some passages just giving you some context and describing it from almost a, an outside view. But it's a really interesting read. And we all know about kind of the things that happened before Suzuka. So we know about Estrial 88, Senna tries to put Prost in the pit wall, um, terrifies everybody in the pit lane because back then there were no fences or anything and they're all just stood there watching. And we know about Imola 89 where Senna goes back on the agreement um, that they're not going to overtake each other into Tosa because it was a restart. So apparently the first agreement doesn't count. Both of those things missing from the Senna film. Absolutely. But one I'd never heard before, and this is in Prost's own words, in his own book, was when they were testing at the start of 88. And I think they've got the MP44 is is in Rio by this point, or they're in a test hack or something. But anyway, Prost has done the first few days and Senna, because then back then they used to test for like a week at a time, didn't they? And Senna turns up and he's taken over from Prost at like a lunchtime or something. And Prost is done. He's done with all of his runs and Senna's in the garage kind of waiting to be fitted into the car. And I think Prost said he just sort of sat in the car for like half an hour or something when he didn't need to, just to see what it would do to Senna, just to see if it had any effect and just to kind of to watch Senna almost stewing in the garage. 
And I thought that was really interesting because obviously that was Prost at that point, not knowing enough about Senna, but wanting to find something out and playing a kind of sneaky veteran move on the new guy. And I love finding out little stories, particularly with this rivalry that has been discussed. You know, it's been done... There's nothing else to say really about it, you think. And then you hear something like that and you think, oh, that's really interesting. And it's also just that one of the seeds for the rivalry was planted by Prost very early on. And that's the kind of mind games that were going on before they'd even done a race together as teammates. I love it. When you get two drivers like that, you know, Prost was a multiple world champion. Senna in his own mind was a multiple world champion in 88, even though he wasn't. So they were both kind of big beasts and that they wanted to assert themselves because... What one thing we see is it's it's vanishingly rare that you get two top drivers in the same team and they both kind of come out of it with equal status. Maybe Prost and Senna's the closest because they. Well, it's kind of that, because of Prost and Senna that, that doesn't happen very often. Well, exactly, yeah, People yeah. are still petrified of replicating that scenario. Exactly, I'd say exactly. But depending on how you dice it, they 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 both come out of their two years together at McLaren in eighty eight and eighty nine, benefiting almost from it. I mean, I know Prost loses out to the to the legend etc. But Prost won a title. Prost outscored Senna in both seasons the, the the drop points meant that he was just over 30 points I think more over those two years but he had to, to drop points because you only took your best X, X races and then you can look at well Senna had more mechanical failures in 89 so maybe Senna should have won the 89 championship and then Senna had the better qualifier so you can you can kind of find these different aspects where if you want to be a hardcore Prost fan, you can say, well, of course, Alan was better because of X, Y, Z. And if you're a Senna fan, you can say, well, of course, because of X, Y, Z. Prost, rubbish. Senna's brilliant and vice versa. And the reality is so much more complicated and so much more fascinating. Well, it almost gets boiled down to what sort of racing driver do you like? Because they do represent those different ones. So, um, you know, if you're an all or nothing kind of guy, then Senna is your driver. You know, he had 14 wins to Prost 11 over that period, but he, he made more mistakes you know, Prost was normally able to carry a gearbox problem or whatever it was a bit better. You know, Senna had the odd off or or spin as a result of just, I'm going to hang it out all the time, even if the car isn't perfect. You know, Prost got more points. Um, Senna had the clashes with the back markers. You know, is, is that a good or a bad thing? It sort of depends on what sort of racing drive you like to see. But it's amazing how these two become the, they become opposite sides of the same coin in so many areas. Well, I think there's a, I saw it in a couple of places actually, but one of them was in one of James Hunt's commentaries. I think in about 89 where he says, yeah, the whole paddock, F1 paddock is petrified of Senna becoming a savvy's Prost. Uh, because in qualifying they knew they couldn't touch him, but in the races they they still had these odd little bits of vulnerability, which I think he probably had up until maybe ninety one. We'll perhaps come come to that a bit later on. I think probably thinking about it, if you want to come up with a big difference between it, is I feel Prost was more of a pragmatist on everything, and I, whereas I feel Senna was a bit more of an absolutist. He was in the right or wrong. It's black and white. He's the best, therefore he deserves this. I think Prost lived in a perhaps slightly more nuanced world. And maybe Senna was in a much more clear-cut world. Maybe that's the way to to look at the differences between them. And perhaps that reflects their on track. Maybe that, that Senna could be, I'm the best, I can do this. I, I can be confident in the car and, and I can can find the grip in the corner and go on it. Maybe, maybe that's the, the, the big difference. And maybe that's the reason why we saw so many clashes between the pair, not just physically on track, but just in terms of the way, the way they worked. Well, it's also why it was normally Prost that avoided the accident. Um, because it's a pragmatic thing of, well, let's all live to fight another day, whereas Senna was like, I'm, I'm, I'm in this moment, I'm coming through now. And we either... The one time, they did, one of the things that did come across was um, the 1993 German Grand Prix, where I think Prost must just have been in a particularly bad mood 
um, which was unusually nice because he was, you know, he's kind of cruising collect for his title, wasn't he? And um, Senna pushes him out wide. Prost made a bad start. Senna pushes him out wide at the first corner. They're actually third, fine for third on the run down to the first chicane. And Prost is on the inside. He's tucked, he's got into the tone, tucked back up the inside. And they've obviously both got to the corner and go, well, I'm not going to break until he breaks. And Senna would have thought, well, I'm going to outbreak Prost here. And Prost thought, no, you're not doing it. And they both going way too hot. Both get sideways and Senna actually spins. Prost just about hangs onto it. And they're both admitted later. Like they were both completely not thinking about the race at that point. And there's a metaphor for those two just being so obsessed with each other. You, you can almost argue that Prost was only in that Williams to stop Senna getting in it. And there were little points in the season where, in fact, there's a there's a Mark Hughes piece in the in the Senna special magazine where he talks about the press conference at the end of the, the Donington uh, race where Senna famously won. Prost was talking about, well, I had problems with the setup, this kind of thing. And, and apparently uh, Senna just sort of did a bit, was looking a bit stroppy and just did a challenge, well, you want to swap cars? And and the point Mark Hughes made in that is that it was a little bit of a, a needlessly graceless moment. But it's like even in this moment of ultimate triumph where Senna's taken what many recognise, what many will hail as one of his one of the best victories ever, he's still got to get that little dig in. He can't just sort of sit there think, I've won, I've done it. He's got to just stick the knife into to Prost, which is... It's, it's fantastic, isn't it, how these two ended up just being... It's like they were the only two drivers that existed, weren't they? It's amazing. In many ways, yeah. And I think it was a two-way street, the obsession. It was very easy, as you said, Ed. If you're a fan of one or the other, you can sit on the centre side and go, well, Prost did this, Prost played all these games, Prost, you know, he was always trying to screw centre over. Or if you're on the Prost side, you can say that, well, Senna was crashing and crashing into us and was doing... And, and you know, he was getting favourable treatment from Honda and all this was going on. They were both at it, even even when you know there were in, there were incidents or or flare points in in ninety one when Prost's Ferrari wasn't competitive enough to be a problem, but they still fell out. And then yeah, you mentioned the fact that Prost gets the drive in ninety three, kind of I think with a bit of assistance from Renault and Elf as well. But at the same time, you had Senna was already I think at that point doing the offering to drive for free thing and. Of course, Senna always kind of framed it that he'd be happy to go and be teammate to Prost again, didn't he? At Williams, whereas I think Prost was not up for it at all. I think all it was in Prost's contract that he, that he couldn't be. It was yeah. just a, I'll have anyone, anyone but Senna, which is uh, yeah, amazing, isn't it? It became that way. And then, of course, we had once they kind of finished, we, we saw the, the very early uh, kind of stages of a thawing between the two. And it's almost as soon as they weren't competitive rivals all of that disappeared because there's the... Well, it, it was from the podium in Adelaide in 93, Absolutely. wasn't it? Suddenly, Prost was Senna's best mate because Senna knew that Prost was retiring, was no longer going to be a problem, and it was the appreciation was almost instant, wasn't it? It just it all dissolved, didn't it? And it would have been fascinating to see had Senna lived and that, that sort of thawing continued. You can imagine Senna and Prost getting on quite well and sort of laughing about these things. I mean, it would be fascinating to hear there what, what the two of them might say now, because obviously Alan Prost is quite reticent these days about Senna, and I don't blame him at all, because people always want to talk to him about it, and it's always framed through these prisms. But we'd have probably learned a lot more about how it worked. And I, so I think that respect was was, was always there, which is, uh, yeah, they're fascinating to uh, to imagine what, what might have happened. Well, with Senna and Prost, we've briefly mentioned Suzuka, so we have to talk about the two Suzuka races. 1989, where Prost turns in on, on Senna at the chicane and then 1990 where uh, Senna basically bulldozes Prost at the, at the first <laughs> corner. Again, we're not going to put this through the, the prism of one being right, one being wrong. I mean, I mean I th- we can. I, th- I think <laughs> I think we'd all basically broadly agree that, well, I mean, in, neither was right 
universally, shall oh, we say. No, absolutely. 89, Prost turned in on Senna, didn't he? He was yep. quite happy for that clash to happen. 1990, Senna was emphatically happy to have that collision if Prost was going ahead. Yeah, I, that sums it up absolutely right. There's the overhead shot of the 89 clash shows very obviously that Prost is turning into a chicane that is not, a, you know, there's no apex in the direction that he's heading because he, you know, he's cutting the chicane if he, if he takes that race in line. So yeah, that had been a great race. And I think that's what gets forgotten is that they'd been absolutely at each other all the way through that race. And it was an example, I think of a rare time where Prost had decided, right, I am going to race you flat out. I've st- and it was proof that he still had it in his locker as well. And it's, it's an incredible race up to that point, actually, where nothing much happens, but you can see how how flat out they are, how much better as drivers they are and uh, their car is and everybody else. They're clear. It's a two-car race, but it's amazing to watch. And, yeah, for whatever reason, I think it's pretty clear that Prost had decided Senna's not going to sort of out-muscle me. He's not going to sling one up the inside. And as Kev said before... Prost would normally be the one that would perhaps try to avoid the accident. But this time he went a step too far because it wasn't a case of, oh, I'm just not going to jump out your way. It was, oh, you're going for the inside. I'm just going to drive into you. Well, there's that great Keke Rosberg quite afterwards, isn't there? You can tell Alan doesn't do that very often because he did it so badly. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, Senna, cause Senna made it out of that and, and he did win the race on the road before being excluded for the uh, reason that he didn't take the chicane well, that well, was the official reason I think that's quite important in the, in the memory of that race as well because Senna was wronged but I think he was far more wronged by the FIA afterwards than he was in that moment because as you say he did get, get it was a very slow slow speed shunt he did get back going again he did win the race you can't and, argue he gained an advantage from the way he rejoined no, the track no it's a there, there's, there's fatuous no, penalty, I mean I think that's it? that's ridiculous yeah absolutely and and that's why there was that strange situation of Ron Dennis obviously going to the FIA effectively representing one of his drivers in theory, against another, but actually it was against the ridiculous decision. It was about the race win, wasn't it? But unfortunately, it kind of got framed as Ron was almost protesting against the fact that Prost had won the World Championship for McLaren. Yeah, and of course, it all became irrelevant because the Australian Grand Prix sent a tanked into the back of Martin Brundle in the wet, didn't he? So it it wouldn't actually (laughs) have made a difference to the championship in the end. Well, you get this, uh, there's there's some good, because in the Senate, film there's some fantastic footage in that there's, there's footage of Ron Dennis doing his press conference with showing footage of people cutting bits of track before to uh, to argue that but yeah that's uh, yeah so I, th- I think 89 is clear and, and then we get the stage set for 1990 the fundamental difference between what happens there which is perhaps problematic is one of them caused a collision at I don't know 40 miles an hour the other one caused a collision at quite quite some speed at the front at the start of a Grand Prix yeah with an entire pack of cars behind I mean I I do think that Senna driving to Prost at the first call of Suzuka 1990 is the worst piece of driving in Formula 1 history. Um, but I mean, well, it's I'm a bit sure. of deliberate driving, shall we say? Well, yes, well, yeah, that's fair, yeah. Well, I just think it's absolutely outrageous. And I'd like to think if someone did that now, they would just be stripped to the title, really. Well, this is the key thing, isn't it? The, the way on-track incidents are governed now is completely different to them. We didn't really have kind of even post-race kind of investigations into collisions and who's at fault or anything like that. And Senna, I think, knowingly exploited that. He, he'd he already, we know from what he said a year later when he won the title at Suzuka again, and he went on that massive rant about all the things where he felt he'd been screwed over. I've, I've toned it down there because it was a very sweary rant that he gave. He couldn't, one of the things I think all the journalists who were there, all the pieces I've read about when he, 
I, I call it the confession, which Senna fans have a problem with. Because they're like, oh, he didn't really confess. He just laid out a load of reasons for why he did it. Um, but everybody says, you know, Senna came off so badly because he just won a world championship. Everyone was actually there just to hear from the man who's become a three-time world champion. And all he wanted to do was dredge up all this history and all these things he had a problem with and all these things that made him angry and, and kind of attempt in a different way to justify what he did in 90. Because at the time, he blamed Prost. He said, Prost turned in on me. It's his fault. He caused the accident. A year later, he'd kind of changed his position on it. And it was, oh, well, all these factors made me do it. And Alan should have known perhaps not to turn in and all these sort of things. Um, but I think you're absolutely right, Kev. We've only got to look at what the FIA did with Michael Schumacher in 1997, which was an incident probably much more similar to what Prost did in 89 than what Senna did in 90, where he turned in on a uh, into the side of his rival at a slow speed corner. And fortunately, Schumacher came off worse, but he got thrown out of the championship, even though he finished second. And I think now they would just have to throw Senna out and maybe even look at, you know, a ban or something because it's such a scary accident. And one thing I learned while looking up that incident recently, I don't know if you've seen this in any of the stuff you've read, Kev, is that there are claims that the Honda data shows that Senna kept his foot down while they were having the accident as well. And that is utterly, utterly ludicrous. Given where they end up, it's actually believable. They go a long way off. I think that his, his rant the following year is kind of interesting from a point of view of where he was mentally as well, in that in lots of parts of his life, you know, he talked about winning the right way, being honourable, you know, and he's worked outside of motor racing with the charities and things. You know, he was a compassionate individual. Um, that's why he's loved in Brazil. You know, all, you know, a great man, but flawed in terms of those ethics got skewed behind the wheel. And he walked back apparently after that Suzuka 90 shunt and Ron Dennis had seen the telemetry and and he said, I think his quote is, I didn't, you know, you don't need to be Einstein to work out what happened. Uh, and he said something like that. That's not the way of winning that we talk about. And he said, Senna didn't say anything. He knew that, and it took him a year maybe to square it in his mind. And now it was, it was, it's the means justify the ends sort well, of thing. Well, this is the thing I, I've got, some of the quotes from that 91 press conference that he gave. He said, uh, he said things like, I did the right thing when we crashed at the first corner. Prost turned to cut me over. He pushed me out. It was not my responsibility. I did contribute to it, but it was not my responsibility. And he says, I was determined to get to the first corner first and I was not prepared to let the guy, that's Prost, turn that corner in front of me. Because if I was near enough to make the corner, he couldn't turn in front of me. He had to let me through. What is that? That's 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 crazy. There's a certain element to which you've got to kind of admire that. The fact that he can... It's not right, but it, it takes... You, no matter what you think of, of what he did, it takes something quite amazing mentally to to quite happily trigger a high-speed accident in front of, another, in front of 24 other cars. Well, to, then, to get to get what you want, I mean that that requires a real. You have to set a lot of things aside in order to say no. This outcome is this outcome will lead to the right outcome. That's not impressive, Therefore, though, is it? It's, it's well, total commitment, not, not, it's absolutism, which is what I, you I don't said think. Before. I don't think it's right, but I think to get into that mental space where you can do that takes something. If you see what I mean, you can, I think you can. I think res- it's worrying. I think you can. Well, maybe it is. Yeah, because a racing car becomes a weapon. Then no, no. Well, well, it, well, it was a weapon. He was using it as a weapon, but because he was in that mental space where he could justify that 
But to be able to actually do that and put yourself in, in harm's way to do that because you think you're in the right, it's not it's not a good mindset to have. But to actually, you know, it'd be really hard to force yourself in to, to do that. You know, I think you can be impressed by somebody doing something even though it's it's completely wrong, if you see what I mean. The fact they can do it says something about them and it's almost a that's almost a destructive manifestation of what made him so good you can't have that without you can't have the good bits of that cause without the bad bits well he sort of references this in a slightly different way in a 93 interview which is in the special magazine as well where he's talking he's basically talking about his commitment uh and aggression generally he's not talking about specifically these incidents but saying that oh you know it's uh i think he says something like it's um uh, it's both a strength and a weakness because it means i don't you know, I don't give in, which can work both ways. But overall, the pluses outweigh the minuses, and it's a but it's a very sort of black and white equation. It's sort of uh, these are these these are the things that, that that I get out of it, and these things I lose out of it. There's no grey, and I think that's why he's sort of had this strange monologue a year later. He's almost trying to justify that he know, he must know deep down that he's done that, that that's not to the values that he has talked about before, but he makes it okay because he'd been so wronged because of Prost and also that they didn't move the side of the grid when he requested it. He had to start from the well, well, that's, a, that's he justifies that's actually, it in his own mind. We should just briefly correct the, the whole myth about the, the side of the grid. Yes. So the, the pole position hadn't moved. It had always been on that side. And Senna made the request that it be moved, which was not an unreasonable request. Uh, and I think actually... Hadn't later... he requested it elsewhere as well? I think I think there had been some yeah, other tracks he has, where he yeah. talked about it. And, and, and he's right. And these yeah. days, we would never accept pole position being on the dirty side of the track just to be on the inside. So it does make sense that the pole position driver should have the advantage of being on the racing line. But what, they, did, but what they didn't do is move it to disadvantage him. I Correct. think that's often no, sometimes yeah, provoked. Yeah. And you can look at the starts of the previous years. And funnily enough, actually, I think in the 93 race... Which is after they've moved it, and Senna's on the wrong the wrong side, and he actually wins, gets into the first corner first anyway. <laughs> you talked Ed about perhaps wanting to bust some of the myths, and we're going to try and deal in a bit more fact here, and and not get too caught up in the emotion of the character. This is a time to challenge that great quote, isn't it? Of if you no longer go for a gap, you are not a racing driver, which is something that motorsport and anyone who wants to become a racing driver whether you're an eight-year-old kid driving a cart for the first time you almost it, it, racing is almost defined by that now and I, when i was looking this up i found a great quote from uh mario andretti who kind of accepted that you have to go for gaps but he said the trick is finding one wide enough for your car yeah yeah i mean the i think the whole you're no longer a racing driver if you don't go for the gap or whatever the phraseology was, has been used as a justification for a lot of bad things in racing. I don't think it. I don't think it's very helpful. No, I think, and I think actually even Senna knew that. I don't think he was suggesting that you know you leave a couple of millimeters on the inside and you chuck the car down it. I don't think even he was was like that. But but also he lost races because of going for gaps that weren't big enough. You well, know. Th- th- this is where we come to the. Uh, the, the question of, the, of mistakes made by Senna, doesn't it? Because I think the, the myth of Senna has that Monaco 88, of course, where he shunted with a big lead and threw away victory, is almost held up as this one mistake. And it's almost portrayed as that mistake happened because he was so dominant. It's it's kind of ignores the fact that actually he was a, um error-prone driver at times. There are two elements to it. I think there are mistakes sort of he's made on his own um, sometimes grappling with a gearbox or clutch problem that you know would would have actually been quite common in those days. Um, a lot of the drivers had been used to that, and a and a prost type character would then go right, you drive accordingly. 
And again, I think James Hunt says, you know, if Senna can just wind in a bit, he'll get those second and thirds when the car's maybe not working properly. Because you see across that time that Prost's non-wins, there are many more seconds, thirds and fourths than Senna scores. You know, he's got lots of firsts and then maybe DNFs or whatever at that that point in their careers when they're both at McLaren. Um, but the other thing is is race, racing with other cars, just not having the nuance that I think that, and we're going to mention him again, Lewis Hamilton has. Hamilton is fantastic in wheel-to-wheel. He knows exactly what gaps to go for, how much he can get away with, how much he can't. When was the last time he had a clash of wheel-to-wheel that he was responsible for? It was ages ago. It was hungry a few years ago. The stewards did him for a collision with Ricardo, yeah. but was that 2016 maybe? Uh, yeah, it was a while. I can't remember, but it's, it? you know, it's longer than any other driver. It's become a big differentiator between him and Vettel over the last couple of years, hasn't it? But I, I made a list uh, for, for this of, uh, of sort of errors and backmarker clashes, which cost... Uh, these are significant ones where you either retire or lose significant places. And that, I'm not going to read out the whole list, but it comes to, tw- I think, 22 races. So that's rather 21 more than the Monaco the Monaco shunt. And just to pick out a couple, if we're myth-busting, Monza 1988 is, is uh, I think, Senna is at very least 50% contributing to that because Schleser is off the road and Senna turns across the second apex like he's not there. Like yeah, Schleser has to go around the corner. He has to be there. He only needs to leave him. He doesn't even need to leave him a car's width. He needs to leave him a wheel's width and he gets through and they're fine. So that's an unnecessary clash. Um, twice he hit Martin Brundle in the back. In, uh, in Australia in 89, it's probably more understandable because that was terrible. The, the Monza 93 one was Monza pretty bad. Monza 93 is a bit strange. Um, and if someone did that now, you'd, they'd probably be, be pilloried. Um, Brazil, trying to win in front of his home crowd. A bit of a daft move on, on Nakajima's Tyrrell which had handed the win. Not only did it lose him his home Grand Prix win, which he was still trying to get by then. That's 1990, wasn't 1990, it? 1990, sorry, yeah. Um, it gives the win to Prost. So there are quite a few races where he has offs and clashes. Brazil 89, like going three wide with the Patrese Berger and just, you know, I think Gerhard's saying, well, like, he should know better than to try and intimidate me by now because they knew each other by then, even though they hadn't been teammates. Um, so lots of places where yes it's very well that if you argue that going through traffic was one of his strengths and he won races he definitely did win races through being good through traffic but he lost some as well and I think a more nuanced approach of knowing a bit better of when to take the risk and when not to he might actually have had a few more wins rather than a few less there are two things I find interesting about this firstly as I mentioned before we started recording this is the list Jackie Stewart needed when he had that interview with Senna and when Senna challenged him on Stewart's claim that Senna had had more collisions or incidents than other world champions. I think Stewart actually said than all the past world champions combined, which might have been a bit of a stretch. (laughs) But if great uh, response we had, I am surprised by you, Stewart. Or something. Yeah, he calls him Jack later on in the interview as well. (laughs) I think he's trying to be very disrespectful. But if Jackie had had this uh, list, it would have been interesting to see Senna's reaction to it. So why weren't you there, Kev? Oh, I wish I had been. Yeah, but also it's interesting. Kev mentioned there. Senna won and lost races through the way he dealt with backmarkers. But I wonder if kind of the two did come hand in hand in that he scythed through the traffic. And we have to remember that back in this era, the spread between the front and the back of the field was huge. So the leaders were often lapping cars from anywhere between like lap 10 or 15 of a Grand Prix all the way through the rest of the race. I remember showing a friend once uh, a race from the early 90s um, and one of the first things he asked me was, how many cars were in that race? Because they were following the leaders and they just were constantly overtaking people. So it might be that without the risks he took that so often won in races, um, you wouldn't have had the incidents um, that came with it when it didn't work out in the same way because they had to lap back markers. And 
And lap traffic wasn't governed in the way that it is now. You didn't have the kind of three blue flags, I think it is. And then you've got to jump out the way, basically slam on the brakes. And, you know, you could have someone like René Arnoux towards the end of his career getting in the way for about five laps at a, go, at a time. So it was a different challenge then. And, yeah, we have the famous description of the yellow helmet in the mirrors would make people jump out the way. But as this shows, um, not always. Well, I, I, I absolutely agree that it's it's different now, but I would say I still think that there was room to dial it back a bit because we're sure o- there's a halfway house. Because we often see when a lot of these uh, wins that he scored through traffic is basically because he's better through traffic than Prost. Um, and Prost even admits at some point, I've got to be more aggressive with this. But that you won't find many references to Senna beating Nigel Mansell through traffic. Yeah, Mansell was pretty much as effective as Senna's going through the field, but I can't think of many times where he tripped over a bat marker. So to me, that indicates that there's there was a bit of scope for maybe just dialing it back five percent and and winning those races that you've that you've given away. Um, but I do take your point. It's it's easier now. It's uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton and Vettel aren't tested in that way that that they were in the eighties and nineties. No, it's a very very different situation. But I think yes, that knowing when to kind of pursue minimum time loss and when that's a justifiable risk and when to just ease off a little bit is a is is something that. That would have benefited Senna and probably would have won even even more races. Uh, astonishingly, I, I think we also have to talk with Senna about because we've we've referenced the myth of Senna and of course where that was kind of created ultimately was Imola in '94, wasn't it? With the with the, with the death of Senna live on television, it transformed Formula One, and he still remains to this day an icon. I was at the Australian Grand Prix a few, a few weeks ago, and among all of the merchandise stands which you have to walk through on the way into the circuit, there's one whole Senna stand. You know, everyone else is kind of all the teams together in a sort of group merchandising. But Senna is so popular still that he can still command a whole merchandise stand and people will make it financially viable for them to be there to buy Senna caps and all these, the, the Senna S t-shirts and that kind of thing. And and I think that's the, the important thing we have to recognise with Senna is although although the mythical side of him has made him a somewhat one-dimensional figure and more uninteresting figure maybe than he actually is, but also, we do have to say that the fact he's become this, this, this transcendent figure, he transcends motorsport, you know, an absolute hero in his native Brazil, did some good philanthropic works there, there still benefit to this day from uh, Senna Foundation, that kind of thing. But we have to say that actually the fact he could do that and be this icon speaks to the impact he had. Oh, he's a, he's a remarkable individual. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And if you even now, if you watch, I mean, I'm sure Glenn would have seen this with some of the research he's been doing. You watch some of his press conferences and interviews, and it is like even with this not being there and it being years ago, you can see the charisma and the way he holds a room. Um, so yeah, absolutely transcends. You've transcends either got that or you haven't yeah. as well. Like someone, someone couldn't just watch Ayrton Senna being interviewed and go well, I'm just going to talk and deliver what I want to say like that. And you're not going to hold a room in the same way. We've got the the famous clip of Murray Walker interviewing him at the Autosport Awards. And it's very rare at the awards even today that you can create that kind of hush across the room. It's a big room, over a thousand people in it. There's normally a bit of murmur in the background, but Ayrton Senna was capable of silencing a room. And I think it is, it's just sheer natural charisma, as Kev mentions. It's incredible. And it is interesting the way he used that, sometimes for good, as we say, outside of the car. And uh, he did certainly, he did play his own political or mind games inside the paddock using that status he'd created. But I believe that uh, Senna and, and Prost to a degree, and as you mentioned, Ed, I think it's, it's key that the death of Senna did a lot for Formula One's mainstream 
attention. Popularity feels like the wrong word to use at that point, but ultimately it shouldn't. Yeah. But it, 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 I mean, it Bernie Eccleston was able to ride on the coattails yeah. of that, and that's not a criticism. That's just there was there was interest. The FIA did the right thing in terms of the way of addressing safety. They didn't keep it as this kind of deaf sport that was going to keep people watching. But I feel that Senna Prost was the at the time the modern version of Hunt Lauder in that it was a, a rivalry that kind of defined an era. And drew in a lot of people who weren't normally interested in the sport. And I think it's really interesting that in the Senna film, there are clips from kind of the, the BBC 10 o'clock news talking about Senna and Prost. And I would argue now that Formula One will only get on any national news station in any country if a driver from that nation has done well that day. I think you're more likely to hear that Lewis Hamilton's won a Grand Prix on a BBC or ITV News or whatever than you would be if Max Verstappen's won it, for example. But at this point... F1 was utterly mainstream and Senna was a huge part of that as a driver and a character. And I think you also, by the fact that the, the loss of him means he's not, obviously he's not around anymore. So he kind of becomes this legendary ethereal figure. Alan Prost is still around at every Grand Prix with Renault. He's a, you know, to me, Prost is someone who you see and you walk past and speak to, you know, he's, he's a, he, he's a, a fully rounded human being. Whereas Senna is this, is this legend now. But I think that, I mean, that's, it, it's almost a cliche, isn't it? To be cut down in your prime does enhance the, the legend. I mean, you know, the, the people that, you know, people talk about Jim Clark, Ronnie Peterson, Gilles Villeneuve, Senna, as these, because they never aged, they never got toppled from their, you know, if they remembered Senna, at their absolute peak, at their absolute best, if Senna had hung around, eventually he would have lost out to Mark Schumacher, even if it was just through age. Now, I'm sure he would have made a massive dent into Schumacher's numbers um, in the way that Senna actually made a dent in Prost's. Because with that, if you take Senna out, Prost numbers are are amazing. But but they're not remembered that. People say, oh, no, he would definitely be in Schumacher. Well, he, he, he might have done in 94, he might have done in 95. But eventually, the younger guy is going to win. But we never saw that. We never saw him come down from that peak. Well, it's a fascinating question to to play the what-if game. And what if Senna had crashed at Imola, got out of the car, fine, raced on. How many championships could there potentially have been? Of course, you could argue you could argue he could have won 94. It's not quite as simple as saying, well, Damon Hill was within one point was only one point behind Schumacher, therefore Senna surely would have won. Because I think that changed the whole season, what happened in MLSA. But but he'd have had a very good chance of winning that 94 championship. 95, B195 Benetton was a very good car. But Senna would have had a better crack at the it 95 Hill. Williams was better than Hill made it look I, that I think year. that's the case. Damon's been very honest about very where his so. head was at in that season. And then you can sort of argue, well, potentially 94, potentially 95. If he was still going, 96, 97? Would so, he have gone to Ferrari? Well, he always said that he'd. Would he well, have taken the Schumacher seat in '96? Well, that's interesting. He stays that, on at Benetton and wins that title instead. Luca de Montezemolo, the who was then Ferrari president, has said that he'd had some conversations with Senna in '94 when the Williams thing was was a bit of a struggle for Senna because obviously Williams was struggling to adapt to the the post Gizmo era. They needed active ride to make the Arrow work, and it took until the French Grand Prix really for them to sort the car out so there was was some tentative conversation it's interesting though from a ferrari perspective who you who you take I mean, it's probably unlikely senna would have moved to ferrari straight away which is kind of what demontes amelo was was pushing and so i think williams were probably convinced him to stay but had senna I mean, if, you're, if you're williams would you would you think well we take the young guy the up-and-comer or do you take the established great in center it's an interesting question i think I don't think you could go either way. I don't think Ferrari or Senna would have been able to resist the romanticism of him finishing his career there. So I think we can find reasons to say that he would have or could have won the 94 and 95 championships of Williams. I think that would have 
that would have been enough for him in that chapter of his career. It was, going to Williams was all about having watched for the previous two years Mansell and Prost, who of course Senna felt were inferior drivers to himself, winning because he felt they had a car advantage. He wanted to get that advantage for himself. I think two championships would have done it. And then if we assume that Ferrari's trajectory at that point is probably unchanged by Senna staying alive for 94 and 95, they're still going to be in the situation they were in 96 where they want to make that marquee signing. And I think whoever's in at the helm, Schumacher would have been maybe on their, on their radar, but I can't see Marinello being able to resist finally getting its hands on Senna. Yeah, I think you then have the rise of Benetton later because obviously Schumacher took a lot of the Benetton people with him eventually. So if you actually then have Senna saddled with uncompetitive Ferraris for a few years, well, Schumacher probably racks up a whole load of titles at Benetton, but into the yep. mid to late 90s rather than a bit earlier. Yeah, I'd agree. And Ed, you've said this to me in the past, that Ross Braun is adamant that Schumacher would have won the 96 championship in the 96 Benetton, that that car was better than maybe Berger and Alacy made it well, look. Well, I think while they had a works Renault engine, so 96, 7, two more years, there's no reason why Schumacher couldn't have won those two titles. And I think Schumacher, because I asked, asked him about this um, some years ago, and he said, well, he could see, the reason he moved is he could see that Benetton was great at that point, but he knew Benetton was always going to be, as that team has always been, you know, a, a, a temporary force. They, peaks they, and troughs. Peaks and troughs, exactly. And they, they'd have had this period where they, they had this period where they were really good. And maybe that could have been four years rather than two years when they were a championship winning force. But he knew there was going to be a slump, whereas at Ferrari, you could build something. And of course, that he was proven absolutely to be to be the case. So, yeah, it's a, you know, what ifs are always fascinating. But I think you might be right that the, the, the allure of, of Ferrari and Senna mutually could have made, made sure that happened. But yeah, but as it happens, you know, Senna was lost. And I think that's uh, that kind of solidified. The definite thing that we lost was the Senna-Schumacher rivalry. I think that would have defined the next era of F1. Schumacher had his challenges. You know, he had a very interesting rivalry with Hill for a couple of years. There were collisions, controversy. He then had probably his favourite rivalry with Mika Hakkinen because he he liked the way Hakkinen went about his racing and didn't necessarily play some of the games, even some of the games that Schumacher still tried to play against Hakkinen. Maybe that's why he liked him, but Senna versus Schumacher, that's... That's the big what if for me. Adam. We saw a little bit of a hint of that battle in 94, but it never really... Had and they'd fallen out in 92 a few times yeah. as well, which I enjoyed. I think the interesting thing about that would have been how would Senna have responded to have been the obvious target? Because really, all the time that Prost is around, he's got that other guy's yeah. focus on, and it's clearly not just about him. Even at the point when you're into 93, where everyone accepts that he's probably the best driver in the world, he's it's, it's a different thing, I think, to be... Um, yeah, the best driver in the world in the best car. He's going to win this championship easily. Oh, this this. Young, well, he'd already you know, said that guy. he was missing having Prost on the grid in yeah, early '94, yeah. wasn't he? And and it was you know he had that combination of high expectation and this young guy. He's, he's convinced there's something wrong with the Benetton. All this kind of stuff playing into it. Um, it would have been interesting to see how he would I think have responded to all those different pressures. Should we have a look at his greatest races now, Kev? We've avoided looking too much at the specific at his great wins because we, we always do these rundowns in our great driver driver podcasts. So uh, do you want to take it away with number 10? Okay, so yeah, number 10 is the 1988 British Grand Prix. So as you can imagine, there were quite a few wet weather races that could have made it onto this list. And this one just just gets in there. Um, he uh, It's actually a weekend where um, McLaren weren't that. It was the first race of 88 where McLaren weren't completely dominant. Uh, and the Ferraris actually beat them uh, to the front row. 
and but it was a wet race and Senna tracked Gerhard Berger the first few laps while Gerhard was having fun with his turbo boost turned up and both of them knowing full well that Fry would run out of fuel long before the end if they kept it up. Senna jumps him in traffic, one of whom is Prost, who jumps out the way actually. They almost have a crash there. That would have been pretty embarrassing if Senna had crashed into Prost while they were lapping him. I think Prost had a, had a chassis I did have a chassis problem from the yeah, previous Yeah, it got found weekend. eventually, didn't it? It did, yeah. I mean, a lot of people scoffed at that at the time. Oh, it's just Prost making excuses. But I think he's, yeah, he wasn't a lap slower in 16 laps or whatever it is. So, um, and then he just basically drove off into the distance. So, um, not really challenged that hard. I think Nigel Mance was the other star of that race in the in the Williams Yard. But by the time he got through, I mean, he did cut into Senna's lead quite substantially. But I think that's just because Senna's controlling the pace and cruising, cruising home, really. So, uh, a, a, a good wet weather win was my take on that one yeah and worth remembering that in that dominant 88 season there was one and they had to work quite hard for it yes yeah that the handling imbalance wasn't wasn't very good they it would i suspect in the dry the fuel mileage of the ferrari would have would have stuffed them anyway so mclaren would probably still have won but i think the wet allowed probably allowed senator yeah a bit a bit more scope to to dominate number nine a close finish at harass yeah, I kind of picked this one for probably more for dramatic reasons, really. Um, but uh, Senna was already had already made waves by the time he arrived in Formula. He'd upset pretty much every lead driver some way or other with a clash or on track moment. And Nigel Roebuck, who wrote the Autosport report for that race, actually makes the point that pretty much everyone was out to get Senna. And he put it on pole. And he had the two Williams of Nigel Mansell and Nelson Piquet and the two McLarens of Keke Rosberg and Alan Prost behind him for for much of the early part of the race and they can't find a way through and it takes takes Mansell um, who's made a bit of a slow start takes him until a good half distance before he actually jumps centre in traffic so it wasn't it wasn't always just centre doing that um, it goes off into the distance looks like Mansell's going to win but then he, ha- he he hits the cliff on the tyres Senna catches him and repasses him so effectively Senna's won that race once because no one's going to get him Mansell then throws the dice, comes in, gets new tyres and has unbelievable pace. Classic Mansell charge, arrives on his tail on the last corner and they're side by side as they go across the line. So Senna has to win it twice, really, because the first time he's won the sort of the game that they were all playing and then Mansell and Williams have kind of gone, oh, well, let's just try one more thing. And Senna has to hold on. Um, whether he would have done if Prost hadn't delayed Mansell's rise is, a, is another matter. But And that, of course, causes a great win because the, the 86 Lotus wasn't as strong a race car as the... As the Williams? No, across the season, you would say that probably, that certainly the Williams was better and arguably the McLaren was as well. So um, it was a case of Senate being able to eke out the tyre life and not make mistakes just that little bit better than, than everyone else. Well, next we'll go on to number eight. Kevin, a very famous race, but not a win. Well, we did a social media poll, which we'll come back to, um, to get um, your readers and listeners um, in on this. And this was their... Th- Number three choice, but I put it in at eight. So it's the 1984 Monaco Grand Prix, which is his sort of breakout F1 performance. Um, anyone who did, uh, didn't realise who Senna was at this point, I mean, they hadn't been paying attention to the lower formulas, obviously, but F1 can be a little bit like that sometimes. I think this is the one where, um, yeah, he, he made his presence felt. So driving the Tolman, 13th on the grid, appallingly wet race, which they probably wouldn't run now. Certainly they'd start behind the safety car. Charges through the field. A few people go off in front of him. Nigel Mansell famously slides off on the white paint while in the lead. Um, one white line in uh, Monaco. White, white line. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, a pretty audacious pass on Nicky Lauder. I think that Lauder was definitely into, this is not the day I'm going to be a hero. So you press on, mate. Um, and, and so Senna goes charging after Prost. Uh, and and would have got ahead of him had the race been probably two or three laps longer. The reason it's not higher up the list is that Stefan Beloff in the Tyrrell was going even faster. Uh, and 
Prost had a brake problem as well. Because uh, to start with, when Senna gets into second, and actually that times aren't that different, and he's later on that he starts to close. And finally, of course, as, as you know, Ed, he, he biffed a curb, so there's a reason. Yeah, he la- launched himself over the uh, curb. Pat Simmons, who was at Tolman at the time, said that, well, there's a reasonable. I mean, it might have held up. But there's a reasonable chance it could, it could have failed. And in fact, I think that that curb moment down at the chicane is is in the Senna movie. It's not really it commented on, but it's a proper. It's not just hit a curb a little bit. He's launched over it. So. You know, we we don't know, and it, it it held up for a while. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't instantly going to break. That, that they can't be sure, but again, you never know. I have a sneaky suspicion that had that race run to its conclusion, Belloff and Senna would both have put each other in the barriers at some point, and that Prost would have won the race and therefore the world championship because he got nine points instead of four and a half. I think it is worth pointing out with uh, with Belloff that he he was catching Senna, but in the it's either the one or two laps just before the red flag their pace had actually they were matching each other all of a sudden so actually we don't know what would have happened had, had the race continued but we talk about all these center myths i think there's a slight myth that's been pushed over the years with belloff that he was just on this rocket trajectory that was definitely going to catch center that i we don't know i think what's more likely to have cost center the win is probably as you say the the damage caused by what is almost an accident on that curb like you say it's a massive hit but yeah belloff for the last couple of laps before the red flag, had, had kind of stopped catching Senna, and that's often forgotten. I think the one thing we've got to remember is there is that footage at the end of the race with the, the red flag being shown and cross-cross line and Senna sweeping past him. It's almost like the, the race is stopped, like just as Senna's making the move, which is a misleading one because the red flag has gone out when Prost was on the harbour front somewhere. I remember looking back where I was, it's... it's on the run out of the chicane or cross you know, to a stop yeah at the exactly sort of so line, the, the race it? the race had been had been done for quite some some seconds at that point so uh again it creates a nice image but again we have to be careful about uh misrepresenting it well the next race number seven 1993 brazilian grand prix another another wet win Yes, um, and this, I mean, 1993 season is probably the year that most people would pick as Senna's best. I'd perhaps argue with that, but um, certainly the start of the year, the McLaren's not on a par with, um, you know, with the, with the Williams-Renault. Um, got a customer Ford engine. They're absolutely miles off in dry qualifying. Um, Damon Hill and Alan Prost on the front row easily. And Senna kind of does every, everything that you'd, ex- you'd expect, really, um, to give himself a chance to win. He beats Damon off the line, uh, can't hold on to Prost. Um, Hill actually slips strings back past him. They've got that much of an advantage. You can't hold him off. He then gets a drive-through penalty for overtaking under yellows, which he's absolutely furious about and thinks is outrageous. So at that stage, he's about 45 seconds behind uh, and in fourth or something. And then, it, and then of course, it, it starts to rain. I think one of the things about 93 is that Williams do open the door a lot to allow centre opportunity to, to actually result in a, in a, in a win. So there's a miscommunication between Prost and the Williams team. He stays out in ludicrous conditions, aquaplanes off, crashes. Didn't um, he collect? Didn't he aquaplane on the straight and collect Fittipaldi's Minardi? He did, yeah. So yeah, he did already spun. It wasn't sort of <laughs> off, but yeah. But it, I mean, it absolutely, you can just picture that view. It was sodden, wasn't it? It was horrendous rain. Well, he loses it in a straight line. Yeah, yeah. It's comp- he's yeah, not it's, even going that quickly. No, he's not. It's, it's, yeah. Um, 
And that's the safety car period. And at that stage, I think the, the Benetton team also had a bit of a problem with their pit stop, which drops Mark Schumacher out of contention. So it becomes basically a straight fight between Hill and Senna. And Hill really, yeah, it's in his first season of Formula 1. So you probably would put your money on Senna, even though that as it dries, Hill's got the better pace. But Senna makes the call to come in early to change to slicks. He was always very good in those kind of intermediate staying on slicks or coming in situations. Um, and he, the pace he has in that window gets him ahead. And then we're into traffic uh, and he's just more incisive than Hill. And Hill, even though in clean air he's faster, he just can never get to him. And he actually ends up, I think, basically settling for second. So it's a yeah, it's a win in front of his home crowd that he shouldn't really have had, but he took the opportunities that were presented to him. I think, I think that defined the way he drove, particularly in the first part of 93. It's interesting you say that Williams kind of gave Senna these opportunities. That, I suspect, was a legacy, a little bit of 92 having been so easy. We talked about this in the past with Mercedes when they were too dominant in recent years. Actually, operationally on on race day, they weren't always great and they'd make strange strategy calls if they had a challenge because they'd only been racing themselves up to that point. But I, I got the impression at the start of 93 that Senna was a little bit reinvigorated by kind of the return of Prost as the target and that maybe, as you say, Kev, the 93 car wasn't, necessarily any closer to the pace of the Williams than the 92 car was but Senna was a bit more fired up and Williams probably dropped the ball a little bit more Prost probably we say that Prost 93 season is defined by him cruising and collecting I think that's an absolutely fair representation of how he approached that season but I think in those early races and I include South Africa in this the opening race Prost did get a bit of a wake-up call about how Senna even in an inferior car was going to go about this season yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would I'd add to that about the drivers actually, in that I think that if if I was doing a list of great drivers, I would have Alan Prost ahead of Nigel Mansell. But I think that Mansell would have not given Senna so many opportunities if he'd stayed in '93. I think a fully motivated, finally I've won the world championship, probably at his peak, Nigel Mansell would not have allowed Senna to win five races. I just don't think the opportunities would have been there. Yeah, I think that's certainly the case. I mean, Senna, I, th- I think his '93 season is uneven, but at his best in '93, he was outstanding. Um, so capitalised on that. Well, number six is the '92 Monaco Grand Prix. Of course, is the famous one where Mansell has the puncher, comes back out, chases down Senna, can't find a way past. It's a frantic last few laps. I mean, I think everyone thinks it's just a little bit of procession, but Mansell's Mansell's sticking his car, sort of pulling out and just like even up the hill into Casino on the way up to Casino, where you're never going to get past. But he's you know he's He's trying to prise open every door he can. I was really struggling to know where to slot this one in because it's you remember the drama for the end, but um, it's there for a couple of reasons. The first is actually his, his opportunistic pass on Ricardo Patrese at the start, which is kind of a bit of a late, I'm going to go for this now. He actually says, I deliberately left it late because otherwise Ricardo would have defended. So if I hadn't got past him at Sandoval on the first lap, that was it. I'd have been So he'd have been stuck behind the other Williams and then he wouldn't have won it that way. And it so wouldn't he, be on this list. And it wouldn't be on this list, absolutely. So he gets he gets into that position. He, again, he's giving himself the opportunity if something happens. The second reason I put it on there is because although Senna himself actually, I think he said something like, we could have been going around for a week and Nigel would never have got past. But Gerhard Berger, his teammate at the time, said, yeah, but I don't think anyone else would have held on. Uh, because Mansell, I think, first of all, he's got obviously a superior car. He's got much better rubber. He was lapping two seconds that fast than anyone else in the entire race had gone. And frankly, I think Mansell was probably the best overtaker F1 has ever seen. That's a different podcast, probably. So to to hang on on old rubber with a car that's slower, not make a mistake. Well, apart from into the chicane on the penultimate lap where he just stops it, but he just he knows he feels the road. 
I think um, is a rate. It would have been very easy to overdrive and and stick it in the wall or make a mistake that allowed Mansell to get a run on him, um, but he didn't. Well, number five is the eighty-eight Japanese Grand Prix. This one always springs to mind for me. I must admit. Yeah, quite a pressure, lot of pressure in the office to make this higher up. Um, I mean, it's a title title decider. Um, slightly odd point system where I think Prost had more points, but if Senna won, he clinched the championship because of the drop score. So it's a slightly odd situation. And Senna completely messed up the start. So that's one reason why it's not high. It's his own mistake. He admitted that he, he made the mistake. So he turned pole into, I think it was 14th, if you watch the video, when he turns into the first corner. He's actually eighth by the end of the first lap, which gives you some idea of the pace advantage the McLaren's had. Um, and he works his way through the field. And when he gets into, I think it's third, the pace difference between him and Prost in the lead is actually there's it's nothing. It kind of goes up and down a little bit, a tenth here, a tenth there. What makes the difference is a rain shower, and suddenly, you know, Senna's taking great big gulp, you know, big chunks out of that lead, um, and catches him, passes passes Prost in traffic, and then Prost again. When it's dry, he can hang on, and there's still a race, and then there's a rain shower towards the end, and Senna goes away. The reason it's not higher up partly is because it's his own fault at the start, and partly because. Um, Prost has gearbox problems, so it's not a straight fight. So I think probably Senna needed both the rain and the gearbox problem to actually overcome his initial error. Oh, it's a sensational way to win the World Championship. And in the immediate aftermath of it, he did say that this was his best drive. I think he amended that in later years. I think that was probably the emotion of the moment. But um, certainly a better way of winning the World Championship than what happened in his two other title-winning campaigns. Uh, of course, championship win, which just makes it that more memorable. Let's move on to number four, the 1989 Monaco Grand Prix. Yeah, this was on the bubble, and then the last minute got promoted massively when I sort of looked into it uh, a bit more. I've watched the race, read the reports, all the rest. It really tried to delve into this one. On the face of it, uh, it, it looks like an easy win for Senna because he outqualifies Prost by a second. Uh, this is when they're both McLaren teammates and then beats him by 50-something seconds. So it looks straightforward. But the real things that, that come to mind here are Prost is quick in the race. Like, this is a classic case of not being not being in it in qualifying, but he's absolutely on the pace. Uh, and after the first lap, when Senna makes his characteristic quick start on cold tyres, Prost actually catches him up and they're running around together. Um, and the two things about this, one, he's impressive pace through traffic you know, he puts several seconds on Prost when they get to traffic I think part of that is the uh, aforementioned René Arnoux who Senna is fortunate enough to catch coming on to the start finish line and so he's able to open the Honda taps and go past and Prost obviously they had history as well Prost and Arnoux only makes it really difficult so yeah so it's another example of him being great through traffic but then the reason it's this high on the list is he actually has gearbox problems um, towards you so this is the plus point of the, of the pressing on when you've got a problem uh, in that he lost first and second gears and he knew that Prost had good race pace even though he was a long way behind by this stage because he'd been held up by a ridiculous traffic jam at Lowe's hairpin um, and he said I had to continue putting the same lap times in so he got close to the wall he was carrying more momentum because to make up for the lack of the lack of uh, the lack of gears and Prost had no idea so Prost didn't press on so Senna wins the race by this huge margin against one of the great drivers in the same car that's healthy. And he's, Prost's done a faster lap by half a second than Senna. But it's a, it's a great, I think, example of, a, of a, someone controlling a race. And it's perhaps an example of Senna beginning to get that savvy that James Hunt was talking about and that the paddock was so worried about. Well, getting towards the top three, we've got a, a trifecta of very important Senna wins, all in, in the Senna film. We're going to actually look at number three and number one together. 
So do you just want to leap and just cover off number two? Because that one, so we're sad, but that, of course, is Senna finally winning his home Grand Prix in 1991. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, 1991 Brazilian Grand Prix. Um, and it's uh, 91 for me, I think he's peaked his peak center because I think he's cut out the mistakes that he was making before. And he's, he's he effectively really pushing the team fully motivated against uh, a Williams Renault that was, that was on the up. So he has Mansell chasing him for much of the race. Um, Mansell retires the gearbox problem. And then Senna starts to lose gears uh, more and more and more has to leave it in one, which I think was fifth gear, uh, which is, you know, unless you're, I mean, that's not a good gear to be stuck in. Well, I've heard it was sick. And Ricardo Petrese starts coming back at him uh, from a long way behind, taking big chunks out of him. And then the final thing is he's in immense physical pain um, from driving the car, anti-clockwise circuit, the gearbox problem, and he's got pain all down his shoulders and back and all the rest. And he hangs on to win, again, with a little bit of a rain shower at the end, although I don't think that makes a difference to the result. I think he's going to make it. And at the end of the race, the car, the car's engine fails, the gearbox is completely stuffed, and so is Senna. Um, you know, he has to be helped out of the car. He's in huge amounts of pain. In the centre film, actually, you see a clip of him and his dad, and he, his dad goes to embrace him, and he says, "Oh, yeah, gently be careful with my shoulders." You know, I think no other race took more out of him than this one, um, and it's because of the context. I think because of you know, still trying to win his home race, finally doing it um, with all these you know physical and mechanical problems um, that he was facing. Well, let's look at number three and number one, which have been twinned. Number three, the nineteen ninety three European Grand Prix which actually topped our social media poll. And number one is the 1985 Portuguese Grand Prix, both famous wet weather wins for him. Why are you sort of twinning these? I'm twinning these because this is where um, people are going to be shouting at the podcast or at the the magazine or wherever they they come across it because the 1993 European Grand Prix Donison won the social media poll by about twice as many votes, I think, as anything else. It's It's the most famous race, probably the one you think of when you think of Senna. Um, but I don't think that it was his greatest drive, and I don't think he did either, um, because he had traction control when most of the field didn't, um, and so I think he basically had three cars to beat. One of whom was his teammate, who wasn't, you know, Michael Andretti wasn't at the races, frankly. So then you've got well, actually, Michael Andretti sort of following him through on the first lap before inevitably clashing with Carl Venlinger. Yeah, he had a Coppice. lot of first lap crashes. It doesn't make it. It doesn't make it very. I'm not going to say Andretti would have been right there with him because that would be uh, overstating it. But yeah. Yeah, um, and then he's against the Williams, which I don't think were were particularly optimised for those conditions. I think that they were they weren't perfect. You've got Damon Hill, strategically questionable as well. Thirteen Again, it's this opp- an opportunity being opened up. Um, and the reason I wanted to pair these two together is because, in comparison with the eighty-five Portuguese Grand Prix win, the car is much more difficult, and there's more opposition. So and he'd never won a Grand Prix. He'd ne- it was his sixteenth race. And he completely destroyed a field. You know, I think Nigel Robart said, you know, if you took that out of the equation, a lot of people would have been uh, praised for their courage and skill. But he made them all look like all look like amateurs that day. You know, he was consistently pulling away. His fast lap was seven tenths quicker. He won by a minute. Um, I think he lapped everyone except second place car. Yeah, it was an unbelievable performance. But the car as well. It was a turbocharged car. Uh, H-pattern gearbox, so you'd have had turbo lag as well, no traction control. I just think that the driving challenge of the 85 Portuguese Grand Prix is so much higher, and there were more cars that could win. There were there were probably, I'd say, four or five teams with cars good enough to win that race, whereas I think if you look at 93 Donington, I think it's two. I think it's McLaren and, and Williams. And, and Williams threw it away. And, and, and Williams, you know, Damon Hill still too raw, and Prost... 
Um, actually, he did put up a bit of a fight. That's the other reason it's it's not not number one. Is um, people people remember the first lap. It's one of the most, if not the most famous first lap in F1 history. But actually, as it dries out a bit, Prost comes back at him during the pit stop sequence. Prost gets ahead because um, Senna has a bit of a slow stop. And it's really in the sort of second half of the race where it, it rains again and Prost starts to have this comedy sequence of, you know, carry on pit stop type stuff. Stalls at one of them as well. Senna actually has a little bit of luck when the, he comes into, he famously set fastest lap going through, <laughs> through the pits. The shortcut. The shortcut, Because yeah, you yeah. turn into the pits before the last corner. And no problem in speed limit either. Yeah. So, and the team weren't ready, so they called him through. And that was actually to come in to change uh, yeah, to change the type of tyre he was on. I can't remember which, which way was it. I think it was from slicks to wet uh and then on that that outlap effectively when he's going to come back in decides no it's not ready yet and that actually saves him some time because he's essentially made the same decision as the williams guys but got, got away with it so for me portugal takes it over over donington but i'm sure lots of people will be telling me that i'm wrong well i think kev's absolutely right and and the clincher for me is the way the way senna in some ways talked down the donington race because of things like traction control it, it didn't mean as much to him as perhaps it's gone on to mean to to his fans. I I would say that in many ways the the Donington race could be considered perhaps more iconic or more memorable. Um I believe that the Estoril win is more significant because it's his it's announcing his arrival one hundred percent as an absolute, you know, stellar talent. It's it's Sebastian Vettel winning the two thousand and eight Italian Grand Prix in a Toro Rosso. Um, levels of announcement of a future great but I can see why people love Donington so much but we're talking about what were the greatest drives and I, I completely agree with Kev about Estoril. No, absolutely I think it's a perfectly justifiable order and I, inevitably there'll be racist people say oh X, Y and Z has been left out but he, he won 41 races and we've uh, only got 10 races to pick and of course one of those is the second place so there's only only nine wins in there in it but I, I think what's always fascinating about these greatest races it tells you about the way they they won races and this ability to win either win ones they shouldn't be winning or win in dominant fashion when it's actually a lot closer than like Estoril Sander didn't have that advantage fundamentally through what you're sitting in yeah through what he brought to the party yeah and you'll find a lot with the greatest drivers there's there's one person i've come across so far that would will be a future podcast who doesn't tick this box but almost all the others um it's a range of different types of win it's the ones under pressure from a faster car it's the ones in the wet it's the the wheel-to-wheel fights with someone yeah the 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 absolute top drivers can tick all the boxes that's why they're the top and set the center absolutely you know is one of those so should we come back to our founding question, which is greatest ever or flawed genius? Question mark. Would you like a go, Kev? What's your answer? Are those the only two options before Kev answers? Are those our only two choices? I, I think we can fettle the question to come up with a more... <laughs> We've distilled it into black and white, which Senna yeah. himself would have yeah. appreciated, I think. Well, how would you, Kev, summarise Senna? What, what is he? Because I think he's kind of the default go-to greatest ever, isn't he, for a lot of people? I think you can make a case of him being the fastest driver. But I don't think he was the best. And I think the greatest driver of uh, in motorsport history has to be someone without the such obvious on-track ethics issues, which is why Mark Schumacher isn't my number one driver either. So of the two options, I'd have to go with flawed genius, but a, a, a fascinating one that, that then sport was definitely better for Senna having come come to it. Yeah, I would uh, I would say no to greatest ever. He's certainly one of, and he's you know he he will always be one of those iconic drivers, and that's not because of the myth that we've tried to get away from here 
I don't get caught up in that. I get caught up in his performances and what he achieved. But I do think there were there were two there were there were arguably too many flaws. And um, if I had to pick just between the two of them, I would say Prost was the better all round driver over the span of his career than Senna than Senna was. And then who knows if Senna had continued into the late nineties, maybe some of the earlier stuff would have eventually got forgotten. But I've always felt, uh, I know, Kev, I know your number one of all time, I believe, is Jackie Stewart. In Formula One, yeah. Yeah, which I think is completely fair. For me, it is Prost um, for various reasons. And I think that's why I can't possibly come on a Senna podcast and say that Senna could be considered the greatest ever because for various reasons, not just related to their rivalry. In fact, that's not really anything to do with it for me. Um, Prost, Prost is my greatest ever. Interesting aside that would back you up. Jackie Stewart once said to us, Alan Pross was the driver he always wanted to be. So there you go. Mm. Well, that says <laughs> a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think... You've got to answer it, Ed. I am. I mean, Senna is one of the greatest, without a shadow of a doubt. He's in the top, I don't know, 100% top 10, probably top five. I haven't quite quite ran them. I, mean, I, I do tend to agree with Kev about Jackie Stewart in Formula One simply because he was a driver who had no real weaknesses. He was never really consistently beaten. He never fell and he retired at the time. He had, Jackie Stewart, just an incredible driver. But Senna did have flaws. He did things he shouldn't have done. But he's a fascinating character, and he's certainly a one of the most important drivers in Formula One in terms of the yes. in terms of what he brought to it. And you think of just all these facets about that we that we can talk about with him. The, the contradictions, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was by all accounts he was a you know a genuine and. and likable character but he was capable of going to these extremes which i do find fascinating like i was saying earlier to some incredulity i kind of do have a a degree of respect for the ability to put yourself in that the position even though even if i don't have respect for the willingness to do it if you see what i mean it's uh it's it's just fascinating to me that people can can do that you know phenomenal driver phenomenally quick brilliant behind the wheel you know he, he has purely just as a kind of technician as a driver he has that 360 degree skill set of the feel along with the ability to provoke the car to do what he wants to do which which always impresses me when that puts him into right into the top of the upper echelon but yeah there are just a few little asterisks by the way he the way Senna's done things that just make me go you're just slightly losing out to, to a couple of others but and he's still referenced now of course all the time you know Lewis Hamilton has has, has talked about Senna uh, Senna a lot and he does come up as a as a benchmark I wonder actually if he almost does the current drivers a disservice in the sense that he was such an interesting complex character more so than I don't think there was a driver like him before or since but obviously if people go oh they're just not as interesting as they used to be in the days of Senna and Prost it's like yeah but that was really unusual that was a really amazing moment in motorsport history so to compare anything to that is yeah he's probably not really very fair and the bottom line with Senna is he was a human being, not a he's not a he's not a god, he's not a, a legend, a myth. He's a real human being. And like everyone, you know, like we're saying, he had to work at it. He didn't just magically have this gift. He had to work at it. He had his strengths and he had his weaknesses, he had his blind spots, he had his areas where where he, he sort of like all of us do, you know, the best of us have areas where we get things wrong and do the wrong thing and we might be adamant we've done it for the right reason or whatever, but fundamentally, yeah, we do it wrong. Everybody does that. And that that's to me, what I find fascinating, Senna, the the human, if you like, he just wasn't this perf- perfect racing driver creation as some people want to portray him. I also think it's worth pointing out if we're myth-busting that I don't believe that he believed that God protected him in a racing car because I think Prost actually once made that that, that quote about the well, the Senna's problem is that he believes you know, nothing can happen to him to a racing car because of what he said about But I don't think that that was the case. 
I think it, we know that he was a religious man, but I think he knew that he could get hurt in a racing car. Um, I think he was able to not think about it while it was yeah. going on. And, and that doesn't make him unique. There are a lot of drivers even today and, and there'll be, you know, club racers even who you don't think about the danger while you're racing or you'll be a lot slower. I would urge anyone who's especially, you know, there's plenty of very well-informed Senna fans who will know all about these contradictions that we're talking about within him. But there will also be some who just sort of automatically hold them up. And it's well worth, there's, there's loads of stuff you can read about it. Read the read our Senna special magazine and, and just get more insight into this into this fascinating character and just what he brought to, to motorsport as a whole is phenomenal. What he brought to Brazil is phenomenal. We haven't really even talked about that. He's a, He's still an icon in Brazil, which is a, you know, it's it's a troubled country at times, and uh, yeah, he he was as you saw from the, the reaction to his death, he was a national figure. Well, one of the things I enjoyed about doing the special magazine, obviously, I would say this because <laughs> I just worked on it, um, but I read it all the way through, and I was concerned in one go, and I was concerned that there would be too much overlap and too much repetition, but there really isn't that much. There's so much to say about him, so many different views on him, different teammates, team bosses, people that worked with him, against him, Terry Fullerton from karting. It, it, it does maintain itself and I think that's probably helps the legend as well is that there's there's always something you can say or, or, or hear about. Well this brings me to a point Kev made uh, not so long ago where he said about there's been no one else before him or since him who was quite the same and I, I look at the kind of framework that we've gone through on this discussion and if we were to do this about many of the other great drivers who could be considered in that top 5% that Ed referenced, the discussion or the topics covered in a podcast would not be the same in any way. Senna's, the framework for a Senna episode of this podcast would be completely different to anybody else. A lot of the other guys, I think you could tick off the same categories and have a really interesting discussion about them all kind of under the same package. But with Senna, there are so many different things are brought to the table or other things most worth talking about and I think we mentioned it earlier my main summary is even if you know we're saying he's not the greatest ever which I'm I'm entirely comfortable with I think Formula One is much richer for him having been in it even though it was really only for a decade unfortunately well, I think that's a very good point to end on. We're going to have to end eventually. And there's still so much we haven't talked about. We really could keep going all day. <laughs> we could, we could. We'd be best not because I don't, I'm not sure the listeners could keep going all day. But do check out that Senna magazine special. Uh, pick up a copy of that to, to read more on that. Do check out autosport.com for all the latest news from the world of Formula One and the rest of motorsport. And have a look at our Plus subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalist on all sorts of topics. Have a look at sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, and Motorsport News out weekly. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. And of course, Autosport Magazine out every Thursday. Yep, and we'll be having a Senna special on April 25th. That's one to look forward to. So that should be uh, that should be out now, in fact, when, uh, when you're listening to this. So something to look forward to. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. <laughs>
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Here, you'll join a community where diversity equals vitality, where support and empowerment lifts spirits and propels ideas forward. Fearless, innovative, connected. UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.